Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and this week we have special guest Dr. Dan Eichenberger back on the show. He has some very interesting information and updates on the coronavirus here in the United States. As you know, Dr. Dan actually works at a hospital and encounters coronavirus patients often. And he's got some information on numbers like mortality rate, some information on mask usage, and a lot more. Before we jump into the interview, we want to remind you once again about our awesome sponsor, Impact 360. They've been incredibly faithful sponsoring this show, and we really encourage you. They're some of the best sources of information on apologetics and worldview for your students. That's high school and college-age students. They have their online classes on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. Those classes are available online, and you can get 50% off with the promo code FREEMIND. So we encourage you to check those out at impact360.org. And don't forget about their nine-month gap year program. If you have a recently graduated high school senior, rather than sending off to college right away, they can go to the Impact 360 Institute for nine months and get a firm foundation and biblical worldview. Incredible program. Encourage you to check that out. You can actually get your application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND. So check that out and their online courses at impact360.org. And now here's our interview with Dr. Dan Eichenberger. God, we thank you for this day, and we rejoice in it. We're glad, and we're just grateful that we can gather to discuss things and um, talk about issues biblically and just dive deeper. And, and um, Lord, I pray a blessing on our conversations. I pray everybody's heart today would be um, filled with your peace and with your spirit, no matter what's going on in the world, Lord, that we can take in peace from Christ, who is the prince of our peace today. And Lord, I pray a blessing on all the listeners every household, every family today. And uh, yeah, we just give you the glory for technology that we can do this at all. And so we just give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, we're super excited, like I said, to have Dr. Dan in the, his house today, yes. uh, giving us updates. It's been a little while. So um, before we, before we kind of jump into uh, kind of taking apart and analyzing this coronavirus situation. Um, Dr. Dan, would you mind just giving us a little bit of, of your background in the, in the medical field? We, we, we don't want to get any of it wrong, so it'd be probably better to hear from you on that. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So I've been a physician uh, for about 30 years now. I've, I was in private practice for 27 plus years, and I uh, ran a hospital. Uh, was, I've been the CMO and the CMIO and the CEO of a 240-bed acute care hospital in Indiana. And in December of this year, I kind of stepped back, retired from both the administrative roles as well as my uh, private practice. And uh, since then, I've been doing uh, interim positions. Uh, the goal was to travel around the country and help other hospitals uh, during times of crisis or times of transition with their leadership. And uh, currently, I'm working up in Michigan, uh, helping a hospital there that has a fairly new c- CEO, and I'm uh, working alongside him as the CMO and CMIO to uh, uh, help uh, through the transition period. That's awesome. Well, great to have you back. And um, 
You know, I'm trying to think what the best way to start on this is. You were, you were on the Fremont podcast with us a couple times uh, back in March. I think it was mid-March when you first came on and then the end of March. And it was shortly after the um, shelter in place, the lockdowns had gone into effect. And so, you know, we had we did have some information back then. We were watching the kind of the, the spread of the virus, the death count, all those types of things. But as they say, uh, lots has happened <laughs> since <Yeah>. then. <laughs> and, you know, we wanted to have you back because right now we're in an interesting situation. Like, you know, it, we were laughing about this a little bit ago, but we have on the one hand, you know, we're driving down the road and we look to our left and there's a person in their car masked up by themselves. And uh, this person, you know, not to overgeneralize, but they're, you know, telling people on Facebook, shaming people if they're not wearing masks. And, and they're kind of like going in and saying, you know, you're, you're, you all are killing us and everybody that's opening yeah, up businesses selfish. is selfish. You know, you have that side. And then you sort of have this other side, this other side that, you know, they, they are highly skeptical. I think by this point, like primed to believe like the most crazy conspiracy theory out there because, you know, early on you see these models that were given in many cases drastically off. Mm -hmm. And instead of, you know, people that have the, the megaphone saying, yeah, we got this wrong and, and here's how we can do this better. They just sort of pivoted to the next part and uh, they begin to highlight certain stats that without context, uh, creating more and more hysteria. We were told initially that the, the goal of this, um, the, the shelter in place was just to flatten the curve um, so the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed. But then all of a sudden it was like the goal kept shifting. And, and so then, then, you, then you hit these riots where these people that were telling us a couple days or a few days before it, they were de defaming and, and talking about these folks in Michigan that had gone out into the public and were kind of um, doing these protests um, about their rights. They were saying how they were evil and thoughtless and didn't care about the people. But then weeks later, you see them on the front lines marching with a different riot. And apparently this riot doesn't, you know, doesn't, uh, spread coronavirus. So in essence, what happened with that was for many people, it, it seemed to discredit the whole idea of the shelter in place. And, you know, oddly enough, before that in California here, they were filling in skate parks with dirt. Um, they were saying nobody can go to the beaches. And then again, next week, they're out there marching with the folks. So in, in most people's minds, they're like, well, what's really going on here? And then we come back, uh, the riots kind of die down. They pivot back in the media um, to to COVID spikes with no context, just cases booming, and you know here's all these crazy the Florida governor. This is why you know he he's a Trump lover. So you know so so on that side you have people that are, by this point they're ready to hold throw the whole thing out and saying uh, I'm not listening to any of these guys anymore. They have completely lost. Uh, credibility with me. So what, what we're coming here today, Dr. Dan, is to say, help us um, make sense of all this, because to a certain degree, as lay people, we are, we are, we want to be critical thinkers. And while there, there's a dearth of critical thinking in our culture in general these days, unfortunately, we, we aren't taught logic in school, we're not taught how to think through issues. So we're already at a disadvantage um, from that perspective. But um, how do we begin to think 
critically through this while having to depend on authorities that have discredited themselves to the public in many cases. What have we learned since March when we talked to you? Just kind of big idea before we can dive into the particulars. Sure. So we have learned a lot since March. We've learned uh, not only uh, a lot about the virus itself, we've learned a lot about how to treat it and how to uh, minimize the impact of the virus. So back in March, uh, you know, everything was uh, a problem and everything was a risk. Uh, You know, touching a box from Amazon was going to give you the virus and, you know, you needed to wear gloves and, you know, everything was unsafe for a lengthy period of time. So, you know, over time, we have found that uh, what's interesting is this virus, and no matter what you hear in the media, uh, they want you to believe that it's an equal opportunity virus, and basically anyone uh, is impacted, and they want you to believe everyone's uh, potentially impacted in the same way and in the same degree, and and that truly is just not the case. I mean, what we've seen worldwide is that there are more than half of the people who have died are over the age of 100. We've had more people die over the age of 100 than we have had die under the age of 30, which is a a significant statistic. And kids under the age of 15, we've had, uh, as of the most recent report, which is uh, about a couple weeks ago, they had 14 children under the age of 15 die of coronavirus. In this influenza season alone, we've had uh, 166 kids under the age of 15 die from influenza, mostly influenza B this year. So we've had 10 times the death in kids under the age of 15 than we've had from coronavirus. So even though uh, kids and young adults are certainly at risk of getting the disease, they aren't at risk of dying from the disease. And they're certainly not at risk of uh, major hospitalizations or major illnesses or complications from the disease. This disease affects people over the age of 65 significantly more than anyone else, except for those with under, you know, other comorbidities, such as the number one comorbidity, as a matter of fact, is obesity. When you look at all the nationwide and worldwide uh, stats, uh, people who are obese actually have a worse outcome than those non-obese. And the other risk factors, as you've heard, is, uh, you know, coronary artery disease, hypertension, uh, underlying lung disease, all those things does put a patient at risk. But age and obesity are the two most common risk factors uh, that apply to the coronavirus. So it's a significant disease, uh, but what you're not hearing on the media, even though you're hearing, oh, you know, the number of cases are up, the number of hospitals are being overwhelmed, what they don't actually say anymore, you're not hearing anything about death rates like we did in the first two months of this disease. You're not hearing anything about uh, the number of COVID admissions. You're hearing hospital admissions, Mm. but they don't break that down into COVID admissions. Actually, hospitals across the country are are down significantly. In fact, the hospital I'm working at right now, we had zero COVID admissions last week. Zero. Um, So the hospital admissions are up because we finally are able to open up the hospitals and start doing elective surgeries, and, you know, we're seeing patients come back to the emergency rooms with other diseases, uh, and it's been a significant impact now to the hospitals, but it's not related to coronavirus. It's related to all those health conditions that have been put off now for three months. Yeah, that's, uh, well, (laughs) 
That's a, that's telling. And, and to to any of our guests, if you're here that you weren't here a minute ago, if you have any questions, anything you want to ask about this topic, go ahead and uh, type them in. Did you have something? Yeah, I love that distinction that there are those in who are hospitalized from COVID, and then there are those who are hospitalized with COVID. And so right now you're saying there's a complete decline of people who are hospitalized solely for COVID that has gone down dramatically. Are you saying solely or even with though? Even with. I oh, mean, okay. The, the number of hospitalizations that they're talking about on the media are, are, are completely unrelated to COVID. I mean, hmm. we, are, we are seeing very few hospital admissions, except now if you're going to talk about the hotspots, that's a completely different scenario than we're talking about nationwide. And that's why I said back in March and April that, you know, to treat this disease, you know, it needs to be having the right people, the amount of people, the amount of supplies at the right place at the right time. A one size fits all policy uh, for a, a country as large as ours was never the right way to treat this disease. Okay. So we're going to see more and more. And well, let's talk about that right now. So, we're already, the CDC is already estimating what we call excessive deaths. Um, and so when you look at the stats across the country, we look at, uh, we compare a time period of this year compared to the same time period last year and the year before and the year before. And uh, if the number of deaths is higher than the last several years, we say there's excessive deaths. If the number is lower, we say there's been less deaths than uh, what you normally anticipate seeing. So what we're seeing right now is a 21% increase in excessive deaths, even after you take the COVID deaths out of the uh, mix. Hmm. What's it? What's that telling you? If you talk to any ER doc during the last three months, they'll say, you know, why, why are the ERs slow? Well, where are all the heart attacks? Where are all the strokes? Well, I can tell you where they're at. They're dying at home because they're not coming into the emergency room because they're so fearful. So this 21% excess of deaths we're seeing across the country is because of COVID and the fear that the media has instilled in people that they didn't even want to go to the emergency room, even when they're having significant health problems. So uh, we're seeing a, an impact from what the media has done to us over the last three months that we're just now starting to get out of. Um, and so hospitalizations are increasing, but it's not related to infections from coronavirus. It's, it's related to all the other things that we would normally see this time of year. Wow. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. I had seen um, – uh, did you have something? Yeah, can you talk about the, the spike in cases right now? I remember the last time we spoke, you said that normally a virus or something like the flu virus, it spikes up during the spring months, and then during the summer months, it sort of tippers, kind of goes down a little bit. Do you feel like we achieved the goal – of, of kind of flattening the curve. And now talk to us about, uh, I guess, the, the cases. Why such a spike in sure. cases? It's been out of context. We have no background. It's just now there's this huge spike. Is it from the riots? Is it from the, the things swelling up? Is this a second wave? What are your thoughts on that? Okay. The, well, this is not a second wave. I okay. think uh, all the experts agree this is not a second wave. So what we did with flatten the curve, we, we did a fabulous job. We did uh, prevent, you know, hospitals from being overwhelmed. Even when you look at the New York City hospitals, uh, they never were overwhelmed. You know, they took the Navy ship up there and they had less than 300 patients complete uh, for the entire time period on the Navy ship. 
the uh, uh, the mobile hospital units they they uh, built in Central Park, you know, barely used. So we were never at risk of overwhelming the healthcare system. So flattening the curve, we did that across the nation. So now what we're seeing, when you flatten the curve, you don't eliminate the number of total cases. You just spread them out so that you're not overwhelmed. So what we're seeing now is what uh, a, a normal uh, number of cases that we should have seen. We just didn't want them to all spike at once. So we, we are spreading out the disease uh, in a time frame. And now we're testing four times more than what we were 30 days ago. So you, you start testing people who are, you know, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, you're going to start seeing more positives. That's no different than you would do if you tested everybody for influenza. Uh, you would see a lot, a lot more influenza cases than what we actually know about because you're testing more. So the, the testing is significantly higher than what it was, uh, you know, four to six weeks ago. So the biggest reason we're seeing more cases is because we're testing more and we're testing asymptomatic people. So in addition to that, uh, you know, a recent study out of New York, uh, they, they pulled blood samples from uh, patients back in February and early March, even before the first known coronavirus case hit New York. They had blood samples from people who either vis- visited the emergency room or had an outpatient procedure done or uh, had some other reason to have blood work done. And they went back and pulled those samples and they did coronavirus antibody testing on those. 5.6% of those uh, blood samples actually showed coronavirus antibodies before we even knew the first case was in New York. So, so coronavirus has been around longer than what we knew about. Uh, and it's, and we're, we're, again, we're seeing that more common as we start testing more. So uh, it's not an unusual virus. We've, we've seen it uh, in the past, not this particular strain, but coronavirus has been around for 100 years. It's been in animals. Uh, I've got a sister who's a veterinarian, and, uh, you know, coronavirus is a known problem in animals. So this isn't unique. The only thing unique about it is it is a different strain. And we're now actually seeing what we call genetic uh, shifts and drifts in the coronavirus. And what we saw in New York tended to be a more invasive type of strain than what we're seeing uh, elsewhere right now. So uh, even though we're seeing more cases, we're not seeing near the impact of the disease that we did earlier in the course. Um, were you surprised? I know initially when we talked in March, they had, you know, given all kind of numbers and you had kind of, well, you know, not sure where this is going to go. Were you, are you surprised by the fact that we're above, I guess, what, 130,000 deaths at this point? What are your thoughts on where that has gone so far? Well, it's, it's higher than I thought we would originally get, but now that we've known, we've, We've gotten more information about the virus itself, the infectivity rate. Uh, I can't say I'm surprised at this point, but we're certainly nowhere near what uh, the initial results, uh, you know, from the studies were were saying we were going to have. You know, initially it was over uh, two million people in the United States, and then they dropped it down to a million, and then they dropped it down to five hundred thousand. Uh, so uh, we're still well under what these models uh, were predicting early on. If you do you think going back, if they knew it was going to be this amount of deaths or something close to it, not much above it without doing the shelter in, do you think it would have justified the lockdowns um, for most policymakers? Uh, no, I don't. And I still don't think it uh, is the lockdown is uh, the appropriate response to what we're seeing. Um, 
why, what are your thoughts on that? Why, why do you think, are you, are you, I, I know we had, um, we had watched a video. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Scott Atlas out of the Hoover Institute. Yeah. Um, but we watched a video where he and another guy were kind of questioning along the lines that they said the evidence just didn't show that government intervention was actually doing much, um, to quell the death rate or the death amount overall over a period of time. Is that kind of where you're coming from on that? Do you agree with that? I do. And, and again, when, when we see who the coronavirus is affecting in a significant manner, it's those patients over 65. In fact, 43% of the patients who have died have been in nursing homes. So when, mm. you, look at, when you look at what normally 50% of all people who are admitted to nursing homes die within six months. Mm. Okay, so if you've got 50% in a nursing home are going to be dead in six months anyway, you know, how can you attribute the coronavirus, uh, you know, saying that that's the cause of these uh, deaths per se? They were going to die in six months anyway. And we've got some states now classifying, uh, one state classified several gunshot wounds as coronavirus deaths. Um, you know, how they got away with that, uh, it's a little questionable. But uh, when the CDC relaxed its policies on how to attribute deaths to coronavirus, you don't even have to have a positive test result to uh, label a death as a coronavirus death. So uh, it's been a problem, and we, I think we've overestimated actually the number of deaths uh, when you look at all the data. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next, actually, because I saw, uh, I can't remember the article, it may have been a few weeks back, I think they actually pushed, was it Colorado, on this right. issue, and they actually had to dial their death rate, or their death total back by about 20%. Um, when they looked into it a little bit more in detail. And, you know, sometimes when you bring that stuff up, people will call you conspiracy theorists and all this and that. But it looks like there is evidence to suggest that they have been at, at best loose with their definition of dying from COVID-19, maybe at worst in some cases even outright um, misleading the public. Do you think that that's fair to say? And if so, what would do we have any idea of that? 134,000 or however many it's up to might be um, actually f dying from COVID-19. I don't know if there's any way to get an actual number. I mean, I think most people try to uh, code the cases correctly. And I do think there's probably a small percentage. Uh, and I do think it's probably a small percentage of that total number that may be uh, coded incorrectly or overcoded, as we call it, uh, as a corona death. But I, I think the 134,000 is probably pretty accurate. I mean, there may be, you know, a few hundred to a, few, a couple thousand that might be coded incorrectly. I mean, it's still a significant number, but it's nowhere near what the estimates were going into this crisis. And certainly now that we know who it's affecting and where it's affecting people the most, uh, we need a more, uh, you know, isolated approach to protecting the elderly. Uh, we know that this disease is not uh, causing deaths in, in children. So, you know, the odd, I mean, the, the problem with shutting down schools, uh, there, there's just no rational, um, uh, I, I can't think of a rational reason why you would do that when, when you never did it for influenza. Uh, you mm. can't justify it based on the, on the numbers. Wow. Yeah, I have a dear friend, even he's he graduated from high school valedictorian um my friend's my friend's son actually and has paid his down payment and he's going off to college 
only to discover that they will not have on uh, any courses on the campus. Everything will be online. So he'll actually be in his dorm <laughs> with no students around and, and, and all that. Even on the college level, they say the younger, healthier people are at low risk for spreading or even transmitting, the, uh, contracting the virus. College age is included in that, correct? What are your thoughts about the colleges and universities closing uh, down or having fewer yeah. classes? When you look at the data, the data shows that there's more people over the age of 100 dying than there is under the age of 30. So Amazing. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the data does not support the approach we're taking. Uh, the media, you know, he who controls the media controls the culture. Well, we've seen that over and over where the narrative they're presenting and the, and the limited facts they're actually giving and not putting them in context uh, has instilled fear that's just overwhelming people. Um, no one is able to uh, go to any social media site without uh, the narrative being that this is a deadly disease and it affects everybody the same and your risk of, you know, if you go outside without a mask. I, I mean, the narrative has been instilled in people to a point that's detrimental to their own health. Mm. Got a good, uh, good couple questions here from the audience. Um, I'll start with Donna since we're on this right now. She said, on the point of schools, do you think it is more about the age and health of teachers than the kids? And how can teachers take care of themselves in light of the idea of returning to schools? Well, that's what the media would like you to believe. But if you look at the data again and the stats, more than 85% of teachers are under the age of 50. Uh, so, you know, the significant risk factor for this disease is over the age of 65. So when you look at the total number of teachers across the country, no, the risk is still minimal. So even though the media wants you to believe that's the, that's the reason, it's truly not. And, you know, if you do have uh, a few teachers who are in a high-risk group, then certainly take precautions for those teachers or, or let those teachers teach by online learning. But but if you look at the overwhelming number of teachers that are young and healthy, there is absolutely no reason to shut down the schools. Mm. Um, man, that's good. You know, the, another uh, listener here had a good question talking about the looseness of the terminology for dying COVID-19. Zachary said, do they, do they apply similar loose standards for deaths from other illnesses like the flu, or is this a unique approach with COVID-19? Uh, it's not unique. It's uh, filling out death certificates is is an art and a science. So let me give you an example. If you have uh, a, a gentleman who's been an alcoholic for the last 30 years and he gets in his car after a drinking binge at the bar, hits a tree and uh, has a hemorrhage and dies from blood loss, uh, is that going to be coded as um, you know an automobile accident? Is it going to be coded as a hemorrhage or is it going to be coded as an alcohol-related uh, incident. So, you know, you can put all three on the death certificate, but you have to put an immediate cause of death. So even mm. though alcoholism was a contributing factor, that may not be what's listed as the immediate cause of death. So it's a very difficult uh, thing to do as far as uh, deciding which one of the many possibilities actually caused the immediate death. So, um, you know, that's just an example of how complicated it can be when you fill out a death certificate. Is there a relevant comparison to how the U.S. is coding these deaths in other countries? Because I've heard, <clears throat> I've heard some people say that it's a, a lot looser in the U.S. than it is, for instance, in maybe Germany or Sweden or somewhere else. What do you think on that? 
Well, again, it is looser because the CDC uh, gave guidelines to healthcare professionals that if if you had evidence to believe the patient may have had coronavirus, you could list that as a coronavirus death, even though you didn't have uh, a test that said they were positive. So take, for example, you have uh, uh, an elderly patient. Well, uh, take a hospice patient who lives at home with a family member, and the fa- one of the family members got diagnosed with coronavirus last week, and the patient died this week. Uh, instead of listing that as whatever the patient was in hospice for, they could list that as a coronavirus death and be legitimately uh, okay by the CDC guidelines. So th- that's the looseness of this, um, you know, the gu- current guidelines we have from the CDC. Wow. Well, it seems like if that's the case, then it would be, I don't know if somewhat meaningless is the right phrase, but at least you wouldn't be able to say, you know, for instance, U.S., you know, coronavirus deaths are so much higher than other countries because they're being defined differently. So that does that make those kinds of statements that we're seeing in the headlines somewhat meaningless in your view? Uh, it certainly, you need to put them in context when you hear them because uh, what they're telling you is only half the truth. Okay. Well, so let's talk about like the lockdown and some of the consequences where the cure has been worse than the virus. What has been your experience that you've seen that um, things, other things have spiked that we're not considering that might be something that we probably should give more attention to at this point. Sure. So there's uh, lots of examples here. We've, we've seen alcohol rates go way up during the lockdown. We've seen uh, a 35% increase in anti-anxiety medication uh, prescriptions during the lockdown. Uh, if you talk to any police officer, they'll tell you that the domestic abuse mm-hmm. calls they're receiving is higher. The child abuse uh, issues we're seeing is higher. So there's a lot of other uh, issues. The suicide rate is, is significantly up, um, and the, the admissions to psych hospitals related to depression from the financial impact of this is significantly higher than what it normally would be this time of year. Yikes. And so in your opinion, say for instance, we, we allow students back in school all, all across the board, K-12, college. Would you anticipate somewhat of a spike? Or what yeah. would you you would anticipate a spike? Sure, and, and, and again, that's what. To, to be honest, I, you know, you don't want anybody to get coronavirus and have a serious illness with it. But sure. but what you what we do want is herd immunity, and the only way you're going to get herd immunity is for the young, healthy people to get this disease and not have any significant uh, problems from it, and develop the antibodies to protect the most vulnerable. So that's re- actually what we want. So we would like to see. Uh, you know, a, a higher incidence in the young and healthy who are not, you know, demonstrating any significant problems from this disease. That's who we want to get the disease. Uh, we want to protect the people in nursing homes. We want to protect those older folks with underlying comorbidities. But, you know, we want herd immunity. That's the only way this disease is going to be uh, put in check, as with all viruses like this. That's good. And I want to come back to herd immunity in a minute, too, because, you know, there's a lot of questions that that people have about that. Um, But before we leave kind of the death thing, we had another question come in here that someone was asking. What do you think is motivating the CDC's broad definition of deaths and COVID-19? And then also, secondarily, did you, you know, we heard of 
certain hospitals being even incentivized with um, financially for labeling it. Do you think that that's a reality? Is, is, that a, is that a unique practice in this case? Can you maybe speak into that a little bit? Well, I can tell you firsthand that in order to take care of a patient with coronavirus in a hospital, the amount of extra supplies, the amount of extra work, the time it takes, it is a significant burden on the healthcare system. So if you have, if Medicare or uh, private insurances are reimbursing you for the care given to a coronavirus patient in the hospital, you need a higher reimbursement rate to uh, offset the losses you're going to take. And therefore, you know, all the insurance companies, as well as Medicare and Medicaid, did increase the rate if you code for coronavirus, you do get a higher reimbursement. So, you know, as with anything that comes down to a financial impact, you're going to have some people who uh, push the limits on you know, how much to code and when to code. So uh, do we see that some hospitals are probably abusing this uh, particular issue to increase their revenue? Yeah, we probably do see that. Uh, And when you look at the impact coronavirus has had on hospitals, I mean, most hospitals were furloughing and laying employees off because their daily census was so low they couldn't justify the amount of staff they had. So uh, hospitals are taking millions of dollars in losses. And so if there was a way to offset that by, you know, upcoding a coronavirus case, uh, sure, some people are going to do that. That's just human nature. And as far as the, uh, the motivation for CDC, yeah, with that definition, uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, again, I think from the very beginning, if this wasn't an election year, I don't think we would have seen the impact from the media that we saw with this particular uh, uh, virus at this time. Uh, I do think this uh, has been weaponized and politicized uh, to an extent we've never seen with any other uh, outbreak. So I want to I want to stop there for a second because you've been doing this many years now, <laughs> over over thirty years. So you're saying you've never you've never seen something utilized to this degree correct never Hmm. okay interesting um so now back when we talked in march i remember the stats of the death rate we talked about the inability to really know that as long as we didn't have the denominator which we didn't have but most people were saying it looks you know it's trending in the direction between three to five percent overall um but as you have said and as dr um the guy that i referenced earlier dr atlas I believe he said that um, if you were under 70, you had a, the, the death rate was 0.04%, which he said was equal to or less than the influenza. Um, is, is, so you, you're just, I, I know you've already said this, but I'm just trying to catch little parts. So you're saying that is correct. And um, so what, what should we do as we see these spikes? Like what, what should be our thought on that? What should be the questions we ask when we see headlines, you know, uh, coronavirus spikes in this area. Again, to develop herd immunity, I am. I, I want to say I, I like to see the spike in the young, healthy group because it increases our chances of developing herd immunity. And herd immunity, you know, was originally thought it might need to be eighty or ninety percent. Now they're saying as it can be as maybe as low as forty-three percent to develop enough herd immunity to be protective for the country. So. Uh, if we can get more young and healthy people 
you know, exposed and develop the antibodies uh, and develop their immunity, uh, we're going to protect the uh, elderly and at-risk population. And because this virus is a lot of times asymptomatic, you can have caught it and have no idea you have it and therefore have immunity. Is that Uh, correct? That's correct. Hmm. And so I've, you know, some people have floated the idea that, well, we don't know if this virus, if, if you actually can get immunity like other viruses. Is there any reason to believe that this is unlike other viruses, that that is the case? No, there's no reason to believe that. In fact, we've, uh, that you will hear that some people have developed a uh, recurrent case. No one has documented with certainty that any of those people who tested positive a second time is actually a second case. Okay. We still believe that uh, once you've been infected and develop antibodies, you are protected, just like any other disease. There's nothing unique about this in the immune system uh, other than that it does appear, since it is what we call a novel virus, and we've not seen it before in humans, that it is more contagious just because it's a novel virus. But the immune system's acting the same as it does with any other virus. Um, one of the other things we heard in addition to the herd immunity, and this may be why it was brought down, I guess, from a need for, I can't remember if you said 80% to 43%, but there's been talk of T cells and other kind of built-in things. Can you maybe explain, speaking to that a little bit? Sure. So there's two types of uh, immune responses, uh, the B cells and the T cells. The B cells are what uh, people refer to when they talk about the antibody response. You build IgG and IgM antibodies. IgM comes first uh, with exposure, you know, within a few days typically. And then the IgG are the more permanent antibodies uh, that develop, you know, anywhere from 7 to 14 days uh, after the infection. And those are B cell type of immune responses. The T cells are different type of of um, uh, immune system, and you develop uh, T cells, uh, and you have what you know natural killer cells and other types of T cells. That uh, for some people, it's even more prevalent and more protective than the B cell immunity. So uh, that may be uh, in young the younger population, they may have a more active T cell immunity than what the older population does, and that may be why we're not seeing a, the severity of the disease. Uh, so we're still not exactly sure. We're still learning about uh, how much the T-cell immunity uh, is playing with the coronavirus, but certainly uh, we are seeing that it's playing a significant role in some of the individuals. Okay. And then with, um, with, with, with these, you know, the death rate, when, first of all, when people talk about death rate, sometimes I can't tell if they're talking about overall deaths or the death percentage. Do you, can you give us um, help us with that distinction real quick and how they're using that language? Well, when, when we first started this, you know, they used the death rate as, you know, the number of people die, who die over the number of people who we know are infected. Right. Well, that's where we always talked about, well, you know, you don't know the denominator. So, right. yeah, you're skewing the results, but you're not hearing about death rates anymore because the more we test and the more positive we're finding, that denominator is going way, way up, and the death rate is either staying the same or going down which makes the death rate lower than what it ever was. So when you look at, when you put it all together, and the CDC has done this now, and even the CDC uh, overall from birth to, you know, uh, death basically in all those age groups, you know, they're saying that the death rate is still only about between 1% 
uh, 0.14 and, uh, you know, 0.3 to 0.4%, which uh, is higher than the flu, but still very, very low compared to what it was initially. Um, and, you know, if you would break that down into the subgroups, like your, uh, the other uh, gentleman that you interviewed, uh, the death rate in the older, over 65, is significantly higher than the flu, but the death rate under 30 is significantly lower than the flu rates. So, uh, you know, if you look at the different age groups, you can, you know, more readily quantify the risk for the age groups. And uh, the media never tells you that. Yeah, no, that's good. And, you know, I was, I'm asking that, too, partially because I was reading an article today. I believe it was the Orlando Sentinel. And, there, you know, every, the, the talk of the town today is Florida's um, rates skyrocketing of coronavirus. And, you know, now I think they've kind of caught on to most, many people are saying, yeah, that, that doesn't mean we should do what you're telling us we should do, which is stay home and wear a mask and all these kinds of things um, because of the exact reasons you mentioned before. But now I notice them starting to pivot and say, well, the death, the death rates are going up now they're ticking up. And, but when they did that, they noted it wasn't, it wasn't a percentage thing. Like they had been using it. Now it's, you know, four more people died you know, today than they did last week during this, in, in this particular county. But again, they're not giving the stats of the age group of those people and why it happened. What are, when you see something like that, I, I guess a, a couple questions here. Do you anticipate as things open back up that the deaths will not, maybe not the death rate, but the total deaths will tick up um, when you compare it to like this time last week or the week before and what are the types of questions we should be asking about those types of articles when we see them? Sure. So you still want to know, uh, you know, the numerator and the denominator of uh, the area you're talking about. And then you want to break it down into the age group and the risk factor. So uh, if they're giving you just an absolute number, we had four more deaths, that tells you absolutely nothing. Uh, other than you had four people unfortunately die from coronavirus, but but that means nothing about what's going on in the community or you know were those four patients all in one nursing home? Were those four patients you know isolated uh, in some other fashion? Uh, without the other pieces of the information, uh, you cannot make any sort of generalized statement like the media continually does with this. And do you see? Do you think? Do you anticipate like? If we're looking at a graph, do you think we're over the worst of the deaths in the nation? Or do you think as we open back up, I mean, I don't know if you could answer that really, but do you, do you anticipate that it'll shoot back up in kind of a V formation? Because that's, that's the thing I'm hearing is, well, there's a lag, you know, so we're seeing the spikes and then the lag of the death rates will increase. And we're going to see that over the next two or three weeks and it's going to be massive. And so we got to shut things down again. Yeah, I absolutely don't think that's going to be the case. Number one, we've got significantly better treatments, and we've learned a lot about how to treat these patients uh, when they're in the ICU. You know, we've learned uh, that we, you know, you want to do everything you can to minimize putting a patient on a ventilator. So in other diseases, when we would have been early to uh, innovate a patient and put them on a ventilator, we are now delaying that uh, longer and longer and trying to treat them with other types of modalities to keep their oxygen levels up. We are doing, uh, we've got remdesivir. We still got had Plaquenil and Zithromax. We still have, uh, you know, uh, the plasma. All of these things have significantly increased the ability to treat these patients and get them through their acute disease process that we didn't have back in March and April. So uh, the, the, to think that the death rate is going to spike 
when we've got all of these new treatments and new uh, regimens on uh, treatment programs, uh, it's just it's not a rational uh, explanation from the media. They, uh, it's just not going to happen. We're not going to see that type of death rate. And we, especially now that we know who, who is most at risk and how to protect those patients who are most at risk. So, uh, no, I think that's a, a, an irrational statement from most of the media. You know, it would seem like if an average listener um, would, would listen to this talk and think we have an axe to grind, but that's just because there's so little context in social media and all of the articles that we're reading. But I do our hardest to just really educate and empower people to break against the fear and the hurt of mentality. And, uh, you know, just the walking down the sidewalks, people are jumping onto the streets so that we are not close to one another. I mean, the, our societies have changed. But um, I, I really appreciate your sharing and your knowledge. But one question about um, while you were working with patients, can you tell me about how you on a personal and a professional level protected yourself from um, contracting the virus? Sure. Uh, when if you had a known patient with coronavirus, you, you know, uh, what you see on TV, the full suits, the, the respirator type of equipment you put on. You do that from uh, the time you walk in the room to the time you leave, and then you clean everything, you wash your hands, you do all the routine things. If you have a patient that comes in the emergency room that is, uh, you know, a person of interest, basically, and they have symptoms that might be coronavirus, you, you basically treat them the same until you get the test result back, and then you can move them to a lower acuity level uh, room. Uh, take them out of negative pressure isolation and do the other things. But uh, we are still very um, cautious about patients who have symptoms in the hospital that uh, may or may not have coronavirus. We treat them as if they do until we have a test that says they aren't. And the symptoms are still the same. Have they evolved? Is it like the sniffling, the sneezing, coughing, and it's still primarily a lung respiration yeah, kind of it's still primarily a, a, a respiratory disease with, uh, you know, uh, cough, fever, mm -hmm. short of breath. Uh, you know, there's a few people uh, who've had some GI-related symptoms. We're not sure whether or not it's truly a GI uh, issue or whether the a lot of times when you have a lung infection, uh, you can irritate the diaphragm enough that people get nausea and vomiting sometimes with that. So we're not sure how much of the GI symptoms are truly related to coronavirus. But it's still mostly a respiratory disease. Okay, here's a question from one of our listeners, Zachary. He says, is there a medical reason why some medical experts would say that they hope we didn't or don't reach herd immunity before the vaccine arrives? Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, here's my, I, I would have to ask them what they think the vaccine is going to do. Uh, I mean, because they're making contradictory statements. If you're waiting for a vaccine, what does a vaccine actually do? it produces antibodies to increase herd immunity. So uh, it, the, the better antibody is those that are naturally obtained versus a vaccine. So why are they saying they want to wait for, if they don't believe antibodies are protective, then they have to contradict themselves when they say, well, I'm waiting on a vaccine that produces antibodies they don't think are effective. I mean, I'm not sure where the rational thinking is in uh, providers and professionals who are saying that. And I've noticed uh, they've, am I right in, in saying that they have started 
giving people vaccines already? And if so, how have those worked, do you think, um, this far in? Well, it's still too early to tell. I mean, they have had volunteers uh, take uh, vaccines, but we, we don't, I haven't heard any significant test results from any of those trials yet, so I can't answer that. What, what do you think? Is there, is there kind of like one most effective thing that has worked on people that already have it? And I, I stepped out of the room, so you might answer this a minute ago, but um, I guess I'd be question A, is most effective? And then B, do you, have you found that um, hydroxychloroquine has, is it panning out to, to make much of a difference for people? I think uh, hydroxychloroquine has helped uh, a significant number of patients who have taken it. Um, I, I do, and the, the most recent study that came out uh, actually did show it to be beneficial. Uh, remdesivir seems to be the most beneficial of any of the current drugs out there other than uh, the uh, plasma uh, treatments. But, mm. so, uh, but I think they're all... And again, there's some natural things. I mean, we know that people with vitamin D deficiencies tend to have a worse disease. We know that vitamin C and zinc have some uh, ability to help protect with viral uh, infections. So those are some simple things people can do regularly is make sure, you know, if, if, they're, if they don't get sunlight uh, a lot. Now, out in California, you all shouldn't have any trouble with that. But uh, so those pay, people who work inside a lot, I mean, certainly taking an extra vitamin D or uh, taking uh, supplemental vitamin C and zinc certainly may help be protective uh, for any viral infection, not just coronavirus. And a second ago, you mentioned that you, you're reluctant and you, 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 you pray that putting someone on a ventilator, you didn't want that. Is that because that's the last resort and that's just the, the worst case scenario? Can you speak a little bit into that? No, we know that. that- Sure. Um, so we have found that uh, if you can keep patients' oxygen up uh, in a less invasive manner, for some reason, the positive pressure that you get from a ventilator and an endotracheal tube down into their lungs, uh, the positive pressure seems to have more damage to the lungs and more inflammatory response than what the non-invasive types of treatment have done. So, so. We've learned that actually if you can use other types of less invasive treatments uh, to keep them comfortable with their oxygen levels, it's actually more beneficial. Mm. The other thing we've actually seen is the uh, inflammatory response. You know, we've learned a lot about the inflammatory response. When coronavirus first came out, you know, they were uh, saying don't use steroids. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we have found that uh, the inflammation with the coronavirus is significant and uh, you know, if you start steroids earlier in some of these patients, uh, you're actually seeing better outcomes as well. So, uh, you know, the dexamethasone uh, that we've used for years in some of these respiratory viruses is still beneficial now and looks like it's more beneficial with coronavirus than we were initially thought. Yeah, very good. Um, well, to jump on this, uh, the, the probably the most uh, polarized controversy that has come to be with this issue, the masks. Um, at, somebody wrote in that I think they said uh, even Trump wore a mask today at the, the hospital visit he was in. You know, everybody's, of course, making a big to-do out of that, his first time publicly wearing a mask. Um, but can you help us understand, because we've heard kind of contradictory reports on this as well in the, in the way that you mentioned about other issues. But some at first they said they it didn't matter, it didn't work. Now they say they do, but it only matters for the person wearing it or for the person not wearing it, whatever it is. Can you clarify that issue for us a bit? Sure. So 
Uh, let's start where a one-size-fits-all approach is not the right approach, even uh, with masking. So uh, we have learned that the coronavirus is typically transmitted by what we call large droplets. And, we, uh, and typically, coronavirus is not what we consider uh, airborne. Now, again, when you talk to uh, you know, professionals and uh, the scientists, you have to first describe uh, and define what they mean by airborne because lots of people have lots of different definitions of what airborne truly means or aerosolized truly means. So uh, typically before coronavirus, if you'd ask, uh, you know, anybody in the medical field what airborne meant or aerosolized meant, it typically was defined by particle size and particle size under five microns or five micrometers in size has the potential to be aerosolized and stick around in the air uh, because it's basically lighter than air and therefore it can just kind of float around. Uh, but we know that coronavirus, the particle size, uh, majority of the particle size is, uh, you know, uh, between around 40 to 80 microns. Uh, some of them particle size, depending on how they're, uh, they come out of a person's mouth, cough, sneeze, or, or talking, can go down as low as four microns. Uh, but the majority of the particle size is significantly higher than what we ever considered uh, to be a significant risk for being airborne or aerosolized. Now, you take that into account. In the medical field, I mean, we do procedures on patients, such as giving them respiratory breathing treatments. Well, that certainly does aerosolize uh, the particle. So when you're doing uh, aerosolized generating procedures, we do take extreme precautions when we do patient uh, care related to that. But in the general environment, when you're outside, when you're with uh, uh, people in rooms, uh, what you need to consider is, you know, how long you're going to be exposed, mm -hmm. what the distance of exposure is. If you're going to be in an office setting where you have six or seven people in cubicles and you're, you know, you're all in the same room, uh, you know, a, a 10 by 12 foot room and you've got a bunch of people in there for eight hours a day. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a risk. Uh, and, you know, you probably ought to be wearing a mask in that setting to help minimize the risk of, of catching it. But typically masks are the most benefit for a person who is contagious not a person who is not uh, infected. Will it help if you're not infected? Uh, if you're around someone who is infected, it'll help. But the, the, the masks are most beneficial in those patients who actually have the disease. I don't know if that helps explain, but, but th th the bottom line is everything we know about this disease, it's still a large droplet disease. So in other words, when you cough or sneeze, these droplets are heavy enough that they basically fall to a surface uh, and they may persist on a surface for a length of time. Different surfaces have different lengths, uh, but it's typically not airborne and it doesn't stay airborne. If it did, we would have seen, you know, we would see a lot more uh, people on airplanes getting it. We would see uh, the cruise ship that got infected. If it was truly an airborne disease, we would have seen a much higher incidence uh, in those uh, patients. And the, the other thing, we've got patients in hospitals with known coronavirus. If this was truly an airborne disease, we would have seen a lot more healthcare providers infected, but we don't. Uh, so we know it's not floating around the hallways. We know it's not going to uh, stay in the air for a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. If you're in close contact with someone who's coughing and sneezing, yep, you're at risk. Um, so th those are kind of the general principles. But uh, if you're out jogging, <laughs> no one's around, uh, you certainly don't need to have a mask on. If you're in your car by yourself, you certainly don't need to have a mask on. Do you think then, given that 
is the mandates from you know political leaders that you have to wear a mask inside and stuff like that is that justified in your view no it's not justified and uh, again this is where i think it's been politicized and weaponized Mm. Mm. because you're saying it really you know it doesn't make you because it's not airborne it's not the the difference in wearing one and not wearing one is is kind of dependent upon the person actually having the symptoms of sneezing and coughing. Other than that, it is very little difference in having one and not having one. That's that, correct. And, okay. And in, and in fact, there's some uh, there's a uh, neurosurgeon who wrote an article just a few weeks ago. Uh, he believes that actually you're more at risk of wearing a mask for a prolonged period of time because you actually may concentrate other types of viruses or bacteria in the mask and then rebreathe uh, the concentrated uh, viruses or bacteria and actually be at more at risk of having uh, other problems. So uh, it's not risk free by wearing a mask. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well. I had heard stories of people that were wearing masks for long periods of time actually developing, I don't know if it's respiratory issues or something like that. So, um, you know, with situations and do you think that like restaurants having to sit six feet apart from each other, is that still a good idea at this point? Uh, Should we or do you think we should pretty much go back to normal and just let people self I guess, isolate if they're feeling the issues or if they're in that category, that small category that's at high risk. So I believe in individual liberty. So uh, I think everyone should understand what their risk is. Uh, You can't get out of bed in the morning without some risk, whether it's falling or getting in your car and driving and having an accident, um, slipping in the bathtub. I mean, there is risk with everything we do. Uh, but we are smart enough and we, we have the ability to make our own choices and own decisions. And I think that's where we need to leave it. I, I think that we ought to allow companies and businesses uh, to open back up and mitigate the risk in whatever manner they deem necessary. Uh, so uh, I think this one size fits all policy has been devastating to communities, uh, businesses uh, and our economy. And and to be honest, I mean, the bottom line is if this wasn't an election year and we weren't, uh, you know, people weren't out there trying to destroy the economy to get rid of Trump, uh, we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing right now. Hmm. Here's another comment or question. It says the CDC recently stated that asymptomatic spread was highly unlikely. And is it true that the spread has been mostly from symptomatic carriers and therefore healthy people wearing masks is unnecessary? Uh, I totally agree with that statement. Uh, uh, asymptomatic uh, spread is is minimal at best, and uh, and there's no real data that shows uh, it is a significant risk for anyone. So uh, that I, I would totally agree with the CDC on that statement. And uh, here's another one just came in from Donna: Is taking temperatures upon entry going to help at all? <laughs> Uh, in my opinion, it's not going to help. So we've been doing temperatures at our doors at the hospital uh, since day one. And I asked my HR department last week, I said, so how many people have we actually turned away with the thousands of people we have screened? And they said two. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and those two patients were actually going to see a doctor because of an illness. So, oh. I mean, we screened for it, but uh, we've, so we've really not turned away any any visitor uh, for a fever uh, since we started testing. So 
Yeah, so, that's my. That's hilarious. For some reason, the thought of going to the hospital to me feels like maybe because of all that I've read and heard that um, you you're, you're at risk once you step foot inside the building. Hopefully, you're suited up and everything. Is that the case? Uh, ask the question again. Um, uh, hospital visits. Yeah. Is it uh, a risky thing if you are um, to go? If you, yeah, if to you go have for something, a visit, if you have ailment. something for some reason. Oh, uh, yeah. No, absolutely not. Uh, okay. No, in fact, you know, hospitals. I mean, we're we're probably pretty safe. I mean, we do take extreme precautions if anyone has any symptoms of COVID. Uh, and those patients are isolated in negative pressure rooms with HEPA filters. So the odds of you uh, getting infected by going into the hospital for other types of procedures is extremely low. So okay. no, I mean, p- people need to, what we're seeing is, you know, people aren't getting the routine health maintenance exams done. We're, we're seeing a huge decrease in mammograms. We're seeing a huge decrease in colonoscopies. Kids aren't getting their immunizations in their doctor's offices. We're going to start seeing, you know, a, a much more significant impact of these types of diseases because of misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis than we, uh, we are from the coronavirus. Okay, so I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. What were your thoughts when you were watching, if you watched a lot of the protest groups out on the streets and little talk of COVID. And then afterwards, I mean, I even saw a meme that was, it was an SUV truck and um, driving down the road and had kicked someone out of the vehicle <laughs> and said, bye COVID. We, we have no need of you at, at the moment. <laughs> what were your thoughts of all of that when there was no talk of masks, there was no talk of uh, social distancing during that time and how did you interpret all that? Uh, the, the ultimate double standard from the media. Um, I, I'm all, all about uh, people's ability to uh, protest in a you know, safe and effective manner, uh, not riot, but protest. Uh, it's American way. So I have no problems with protesting. Uh, I actually I don't see a problem with those uh, patients not wearing a mask because I think the risk being outdoors, even in close proximity, is still pretty negligible for the people who are out there. They're young and healthy, typically for the most part. You didn't see a lot of 80-year-olds uh, out there in the protest. You didn't see a lot of people with significant comorbidities that we know of. So I, I think people decided what their risk was, what the risk tolerance was, and they made their own decision. And I think that's okay. Very good. That's cool. Does the increase of risk, um, or does the does the risk amount increase uh, drastically? You think indoors when you're that close together, um, as far as trans transmission? Yes, uh, I definitely think it's a significant difference indoors versus outdoors, uh, just because of air circulation and the ability to uh, move air effectively uh, in offices. Uh, some offices, you know, uh, you'll hear people say, you know, there's no air movement in my office. Well, th- those are the offices who are certainly at risk. So uh, the more you can move air through an office uh, or in- inside setting, uh, the better off you're going to be. And so you said you feel like it's politicized and weaponized. Did you, do you notice and have you studied or seen that a lot of more of the blue states are taking more of the draconian measures and then more of the red states are just kind of more giving it up to uh, letting give more liberty to the people, protecting rights? What are your thoughts? Well, I would say the stats speak for themselves. So uh, I think if you look across the nation, you'll see that the blue states definitely are the ones who are uh, 
having more draconian measures to shut down the states. Uh, and there, and I, I do, I, I do think it's a, a politicized or a reason they're doing it because the science doesn't back them up. And have you noticed in a difference in like, you know, I think they said Florida and Texas, you know, the, again, they're claiming the high spikes in those, you know, and I think there's a political reason behind that, but they have, um, you know, they were one of the, states early on to open everything back up. But then I saw that California was high as well um, and they haven't opened up, but has there been a difference between the ones that have opened back up and not? And if there has been a a difference, do you think the ones that have not opened back up will eventually um, spike as well if or when they do? So two things. Statistically, when you look at all the states, there's really not a significant difference other than uh, the couple that had the major impact early on, New York and New Jersey. Certainly, uh, their data is going to probably continue to be skewed just because they had the spike initially. But when you look at the other states, there's really not a significant difference between those states who have opened up and those states who have not opened up. So uh, I don't think we're going to see much of a difference long term. Uh, I do think the states that have uh, delayed reopening uh, are going to see their numbers increase once they do open up. Uh, because, again, flatten the curve uh, never meant that you're going to decrease the total number of cases. It just meant you were going to spread them out. Mm. Well, that's good. Well, you know, now moving just a little bit to, again, kind of where we started is, and there's a couple questions along this line, but as lay people, like I said, we're often dependent upon authorities. Many of us aren't doctors. We're not statisticians. Uh, we don't, we're not modelers. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're in a case now where it's even hard to tell who to believe. And I don't know if you were, you were keeping up with this, Dr. Dan, you might've been too busy actually working with patients. <laughs> but a, a couple of months ago, there was a, the, a video that went viral from Dr. Erickson, I believe from California. And, you know, you can critique some of his reasoning in there for sure. Did he, you know, did he do his stats right for his, the central part of his case? Maybe not. Um, but, you know, he seemed to be a thoughtful guy, and he, he responded and came back with some counter-arguments that were pretty strong as well and even got some of the leading thinkers around the world to, and did interviews with him. But the, the more interesting part of that was the fact that they kept taking his video down. And then you had the pandemic thing, and again, whether or not you think it was legitimate, they kept taking the videos down. And that, that created, I think, a suspicion in many people's minds that, like, man, why are they – I've never seen this in the medical world where you can't, instead of just refuting the position, they're actually silencing them. Um, what are your thoughts on that part of it? Well, I think it just parallels what we're seeing in a lot of other uh, left-sided uh, organizations, including colleges. I mean, how many times have we seen colleges shut down conservative speakers for any number of reasons, just because they're conservative or don't have the same viewpoint. So we're seeing that in the media. We're seeing that in the social media platforms. And, you know, again, those who control the narrative controls the culture. So if you can, and we've seen it. I mean, you've mentioned yourself, you saw someone driving with a mask alone in their car. I mean, that is the media's uh, instilling fear to the point where there's not even a rational thought anymore. So uh, I, I do think that taking these videos down of people who don't agree with the mainstream uh, media's mindset uh, is detrimental to everyone. And it is, 
I, I guess there is a uh, another website called flattenthefear.com mm. that does have a lot of physicians who have written articles, you know, against the mainstream media's narrative. And, and it does give you some, uh, it gives you sometimes the same statistics you're hearing on the media, but it puts it in the context of the whole picture, which uh-huh. is what you're not seeing in the media. So it's, it's a wonderful website. It's got some wonderful articles that give you a different viewpoint of what this uh, uh, coronavirus really is doing to our country. And that's flattenthefear.com? Yes. That's really good. Writing that down. That's good. And that, you know, that's a couple questions in that same vein came in from the audience earlier. But one said, I'm wondering if you can offer some sources to check for updates on data. Uh, can, and can he speak to the idea that it seems like different doctors have been quoted on all sides of this issue? What is the challenge for doctors to share, um, offer more, more consistent information? Yeah. You kind of answered that already, but anything you'd, else you'd want to add to that? No, I don't think there's a one significant site uh, that gives you all the information. Um, the CDC, certainly, all the numbers are there. Uh, you know, our friend Frank Turek uh, says, science says nothing, scientists <laughs> do. Uh, you know, th- the science is the, is the data. How you interpret the data is really up to each individual, quote, scientist, whether that's an individual or a professional. Uh, and again, Everything is has an underlying bias. So, you know, depending on where you're coming from, I mean, I have biases. Uh, I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a conservative. I'm a Christian. And, and I have a bias that uh, I believe in, you know, free will and uh, in individual responsibility. So my biases lead me to believe that, you know, the numbers support opening things up uh, quicker than what uh, some of the some of those on the left do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part, you know, I think (laughs) my sense of it, I don't know what you think about this, Dr. Dan, but, you know, because somebody said this initially or uh, recently about the race issue that was going on, they said, you know, we're dealing right now with the fruits of anti-intellectualism in the church. And I think we're at the point now where because we haven't been trained on how to assess claims, counter claims, um, we you know, we don't know how to often test the authorities. Um, but as, what, are, what are some tools or, or some things we can, you would just encourage us as lay people that we might develop in learning how to assess these arguments in general? Sure. So uh, a couple things. Number one, always asking, uh, you, you know, where the data came from, uh, and getting a starting point of definitions. So if we're talking about death rate, let's talk about you know, what the definition that you know, the person presenting the data is giving as a definition of death rate. What's well, infectivity rate? I mean, you want to know what the definition is to begin with. You can't argue a point unless you're all starting from the same starting point. Uh, you know, if you're talking about Christianity, uh, we have a lot of denominations who believe a lot of different things in Christianity. But if we can all start at the same point, what is our reference source? You know, mm-hmm. it's the Bible. So if we can start there, uh, and again, I, I grew up Catholic. You know, I'm now non-denominational Christian. So uh, I studied the Catholic doctrine a lot. And, you know, if uh, they believe in extra-biblical uh, sources, uh, which, you, you know, so you're never going to come to the same conclusion if you don't start at the same starting point. You know, a Ford and a Chevy, you know, they're both automobiles, but 
but you, if you're not starting with the same platform, you're not going to come up with the same automobile at the end. Uh, mm. So we, we have to know where we, we're starting and what the definitions are that we're trying to, to, uh, to define. Uh, and one of the things is, you know, systematic racism with all the issues. I mean, what's that definition? Everybody right. has their own interpretation of that. But unless you can agree on a definition, you're never going to come to the same conclusion uh, with racism, systematic racism, or any of those hot topics that are out there. Very good. Yeah, I th- you know, it's funny because that's the series we've been doing, and that's one of the things Neil Shinvey said is whenever someone tells you there's systemic racism, you, what do you mean by that, you know, yeah. and, and clarifying that issue. And, that, and I think that's a general tool we're just going to have to use more and more in this day and age when you have so many voices from different sides that are being driven. And this probably isn't anything new with humanity, but I think it seems to be highlighted uh, ex- like even more these days that many people aren't driven even by pursuit of truth. And it's just uh, comes down to pursuit of their power or their agenda and they're skewing, they're willing to, I mean, to say they're spinning things and misleading would be a drastic understatement <laughs> right now of the, what many have come to call the activist media, not even the mainstream media anymore. And so I think we have to know, like you said, where they're coming from, where the bias is leading so we can kind of test it out. And we always have to try to do our best to test our own biases and the biases of others. But here's another um, question that came in from Zachary. He said, I agree that this issue has been polarized and politicized here in the States and political shenanigans make sense for frenzy here. But what about globally? Why do you suppose there is global panic? So, uh, so I, I think similar reasons. Uh, I, I do think that uh, the uh, left leaning media uh, does uh, present it in a different way. And what we hear here in the United States is typically the left leaning media from across, uh, you know, overall uh, around the world. We hear the left leaning media more than we do anywhere else. There are conservative websites and conservative commentators. Dictators, uh, all over the world who, who you will hear a different me- uh, message from, but we don't hear that typically here. And you can't, f- unless you're out actually searching those out, you're not going to see them readily here in the United States. So I do think there is another narrative out there. It's just in the minority because the left controls majority of the media, even around the world. Yeah, I think that's, that's spot on. Cause you think about, you know, where we are, 30 minutes, I guess, from Palo Alto out here in uh, San Francisco area where, you know, you got the headquarters of big tech and, you know, super, super, super left leaning. And they, I mean, those tech platforms are the filters for really the entire world in many ways. So you're getting that same Marxist, nervous was saying communist stream that's, um, that's filtering the data that's not only limited to the U.S., but it's, a, it's a right now a global phenomenon, especially in the West. And um, I think, you know, like you said, Dr. Dan, there, there, there are people, there are uh, resistors, <laughs> I guess you could call them, in, in the U.K. as well, Peter Hitchens being one of them, a journalist who's come under a lot of fire for, you know, expressing a dissenting view on these issues, but people, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar battle right now in the West. Here's another question uh, related. Any updates on Sweden and how they've um, handled the the COVID issue? Uh, So their stats are slightly higher than some of their counterparts, but their economy has certainly bounced back quicker than their counterparts as well. So, uh, but when you, 
as you the further out you go, and once these other countries finally start seeing uh, uh, the number of cases, uh, because again, let's go back to flatten the curve. Flatten the curve was never to decrease the total number of cases. So Sweden's going to have a higher case number up front, but these other countries are going to eventually get to the same point. So the stats are going to basically be equal long term. I've got a question. How would you advise a young person, say in college, young and healthy and strong, but they live with their elderly relatives? If they're in and out, how should they take care and be wise and make sure they're not spreading it or bringing the virus home? Well, typically, I I would advise them to to continue to have routine relationships with their elderly uh, family member at home unless they are symptomatic or ill. And in that case, they need to uh, isolate and, you know, basically quarantine either them or their elderly family member. But if you're young and healthy and asymptomatic, the risk to spread this is virtually minimal. I mean, it's it's minimal. So uh, I I think the harm to the elderly to not have relational, uh, you know, meetings with people they love and trust uh, is more devastating to their mental health and psychological health than anything else. Is it uh, with asymptomatic carriers, is it less um, contagious to pass it on in that in those instances? Well, no one knows the answer to that specifically, okay. but we do believe that if you're asymptomatic, your viral burden is probably less as well. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure we don't miss any questions while we got you here on this update. Um, did you have anything else? Maybe? I think that's it. Yeah, I think headlines, there's so much media hysteria. Um, how would you advise to just be on guard against stay off media, (laughs) become cynical? How do you, you know, give us a word of uh, wisdom and encouragement on that. We're living in a world where we're just, it's the water we swim in and half of us don't know it's wet. And so everything we read speaks fear, speaks things are the worst case scenario this week, more so than last week. Um, how are you guarding against it? And how, I mean, well, yeah, encourage us in that a little. So I think uh, moderation's the key to life uh, in virtually everything we do. So I, I would say that uh, if you really want to be, have a healthy respect for the data, then every time you see a sensational headline, you need to go and try and find the opposite of that sensational headline and see what someone on the other side is, is saying specifically about that topic or that stat or whatever it is that you're seeing. Go out and try and search for the opposite and then get a healthy balance between the two. So good. Hmm. That's good. And, you know, just re- with responding to people um, on social media, do you, you know, you see people posting this stuff and they're oftentimes, you know, shaming people for, because, you know, here's, here's how I'm seeing the, the, the presentation, you know, spiking cases, hashtag stay home, hashtag wear a mask. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, is it worth it? You think to, to jump in that and say, Hey, uh, you know, that's not the whole story. What, what would you recommend us to do on social media at this point? Well, 
I am not a fan of social media <laughs> ar- arguing. Uh, I think if you have someone who you're close to, who you care about, I think you need to have an offline conversation mm-hmm. where you both agree to the ground rules and you talk uh, talk about the issue, uh, you know, not in a public forum. It's mm. really good. That is good. Do you um, now going to ask you uh, to to put on your profit hat here? Do you <laughs> do you think that uh, do you think we're going to see any pivot away from the fear mongering prior to November? Is it November third or prior to election day, or even after, <laughs> or even after? Well, so I, I don't think we're going to see any decline before the election. I think the election uh, is driving all the narratives right now. And I think uh, there are people who truly want to see the economy fail in an attempt to uh, unseat Trump. I think if Trump wins, I think we're going to continue to see four more years of this uh, media uh, bickering and uh, just constant negativity. Uh, I think if Biden wins, I think we will see a significant decline in uh, the narratives we're seeing coming from the left at this point. So you think if, if, if Biden wins, you think they would basically reopen the economy and try to get it all ro- rolling right away? I do. I do. <laughs> wow. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, well, and, and last thing, like just as far as lifestyle, um, oh, hey, Zachary, he said, why did you leave Kanye out? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, that's good. Well, well, to be honest, I think Con, uh, I think he's going to help Trump. Actually, I, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think. Yes, Yeezy twenty twenty. So you know, just as far as lifestyle, you know, because you wrestle with this as a Christian, you're like, man, people are interpreting. You know, if I go out and I'm not masked up and and I'm not toting the narrative and I'm just out and about having fun with people people are putting this thing on you like you don't care. And, um, you know, if you want to open your business up or you want to should, are are we at the place where we just need to do what we need to do and not worry about perception because of the media's creation of all this narrative or what would you recommend on that end? Uh, sure. I, I, I mean, we need to care less about what other people think or feel. We can't deal with people's feelings. We can't make them feel a different way. Um, you know, we have to deal with our, our, our own, feelings and we have to make our own decisions and we have to figure out what our risk uh, mitigation efforts will be. And for some people that will be significant, you know, they'll avoid everything for a while longer and some people will have a risk tolerance that uh, is very low and therefore they, they will go out and do things uh, immediately. So, but I think it, again, it comes down to individual liberty. Uh, and I think that's what our country was founded on. And we, we are eroding that and allowing uh, the government to uh, take away liberties that we may have a very hard time getting back. Hmm. Preach. And, it, you know, taking, speaking of taking liberties, you, you know, out here in, in Cali, they told us we couldn't worship and chant in yeah. church, uh. <laughs> which, you know, is hilarious. Um, but, you know, as Christian, I think because many Christians, we don't have any worldview training by and large, uh, maybe that's too strong, but you know, I saw a popular Christian last week on Twitter say, tell me again, the, the scripture that says we have rights or that we should care about our rights or something. And it's kind of a smug, you know, response to people who are saying we need to be careful. Like you just said mm-hmm. in this moment, not to sacrifice 
those liberties long term because of an overreach of the government based on a false narrative of hysteria. Just to, for kind of reaching into your Christian theology here, um, help us understand a little bit the, um, the rights from a biblical perspective and why it's not just some selfish thing that, that mean and, you know, uh, non-caring Christians are thinking about right now. Well, again, I think, uh, you know, the Bible tells us and Jesus tells us that we, we need to follow the rules of the world uh, as long as they basically aren't uh, against moral teachings. So, you know, unfortunately, if your governor or your mayor says that masks are mandated at this point when you're out in public, then, you know, as a Christian, if you choose to go out in public, then you need to follow the rules that have been given. That's It's not an immoral it, you know, it has nothing to do with morality, basically. So you need to follow the guidelines of those, uh, you know, people in power because we know that God put them there for a reason and he will unseat them at the appropriate time long term. So uh, as long as it's not immoral, then you have to decide as far as an individual liberty. Do you go to that restaurant? Do you go out to that, uh, you know, uh, Walmart or Myers or Menards or whatever store you want to go to? Uh, some will require masks, some won't. Uh, you know, I've made personal choices uh, that uh, there's certain stores that uh, require me to wear a mask when I walk in. Well, they have competitors that don't do that. So I go to the competitors now, and I will continue <laughs> to do that uh, until things change. So uh, we each have uh, individual choice and individual liberties, and we need to make those decisions. But if there is a mandate given by uh, someone in power, we know that the Bible teaches us we're supposed to follow those as long as they're not immoral. Mm. Very good. One last question. One last question. What we got? Oh, you mentioned that there could be a potential negative health impact of mask wearing. Do you suppose there is freedom to not wear masks for health concerns? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think some uh, patients with underlying lung disease, asthma, uh, mask oh, wearing, yeah. uh, uh, especially COPD patients uh, that are kind of teetering between an end stage, and uh, masks can decrease their oxygen saturation uh, uh, significantly enough that puts them at a health risk, you know, uh, even a heart attack or a stroke. So uh, definitely there are people with underlying diseases that shouldn't be wearing masks. Mm, very good. Oh, sorry. I'm getting more questions here now, right at the end. We're really close down. Um, some, someone said, what about the response to Romans 13 that says that in the U.S. the Constitution is our governing authority and those elected officials who are violating our rights are actually the ones being rebellious? Well, I would agree with that, but until <laughs> we have three branches of the government, until the judicial branch says it's unconstitutional, that's just our interpretation right now. So uh, as of right now, we have to follow the mandates that were given until it is proven to be unconstitutional. But I would agree with that individual that a lot of these things, uh, I believe, are unconstitutional. And therefore, but until that's, uh, you know, given to us by the policies and procedures we have in place, we have to uh, follow the current recommendations. Good yeah, that's a great question, Veronica. Yeah. And I think as long as all is apparently whoever is controlling John Roberts right now, we, we probably won't get much help on the score. <laughs> um, yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Dr. Dan, so good. Uh, thank you. for coming in Always and speaking good. into this. And thank you guys for joining us. Uh, this is going to be up on YouTube uh, tomorrow. And I share it and, and we'll be back uh, next week. Hopefully everybody with, uh, I'm, um, we'll see 
for sure, but it may be the interview with uh, Neil Shinby and Sam Say together, just filling questions. So um, thank you very much. And uh, Dr. Dan, we'll, we'll hopefully see you down the road sometime or get to talk to you again. We would love to interact with you. If you have prayer requests or if you have thoughts on the show or something that you'd like to hear in the future, you can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our username there is at FreeMindFM. And we have a podcast page, FreeMindPodcastFM. You can reach us at any of those places. And if you haven't yet, if you could give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts, that would help us out and be discovered by even more people. And you can also get access to bonus episodes of the FreeMind Podcast. We have lots of bonus episodes, and you get access to the entire back catalog when you support the show at patreon.com slash freemindfm. That's patreon.com slash freemindfm. There's a link in show notes, or you can just go to freemind.fm and click support the show. A monthly donation of any amount gives you access to all those bonus episodes and future bonus episodes. So we would appreciate if you supported us there. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to look for our post about next week's open forum on race and the church. Check it out on Instagram, and we announce it on Twitter as well. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.